we are not. And we give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And ask the children to come forward for their notes at this time. morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Um, this, ch- this chapter in the Bible is a, is a challenge. Um, this has been for 10 years I read this. In 99, I still remember it, and it never quite made sense to me. And uh, it's been a labor of love ever since, and I've, I am excited for today. But To make sense of this, we need to pray um, for the Lord to help us. So let's just pray quickly. Lord, I just pray right now for uh, your word to work. Lord, I pray for myself that anything that is unhelpful or confusing that I am about to say, that you would strike it from my mouth, that you would uh, block me from saying it. Anything that is helpful that you would even now be giving it to me. I pray for for those who are going to hear this, Lord. I pray that anything that is unhelpful or uh, you know, in a way that is is condemning in, in an unhealthy way, I pray that you would block that from them. Anything that is encouraging or that uh, convicts in a, in a godly way, I pray that that would be the thing that you drive deep into them. We pray this in your name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to 1 Kings 13. 1 Kings 13. Um, I'll just give a quick synopsis of 1 Kings 13 because there's a lot here. And just to kind of bring everybody up to board. So a thumbnail sketch is this. There's three characters in, in this story. There's King Jeroboam. And he's offering, he, he's, right at the very beginning, he's offering a sacrifice to, to a false idol, to a calf. And so the second character of this story is a man of God. He's called a man of God, and he comes and he rebukes Jeroboam, but he doesn't really rebuke Jeroboam. He speaks against the altar, which is odd in and of itself. Um, but he speaks against the altar, and he says, on you, this, this altar is, is in King Josiah is a, is a man who's going to come, and he's going to, to tear this altar down, and he's going to burn dead man's bones on this and as a sign, this altar is going to be torn down and ashes will flow out. Well, and Jeroboam, never at a loss for words, he sticks out his hands and he says, seize him. And at that moment, as he tries to pull back his hand, we see that he notices he can't pull his hand back and everybody else notices. So he implores the man of God and says, please, man of God, please call upon God to, to heal my hand. So the man of God does. And his hand is healed. 
And so Jeroboam wants to reward him, and, but the man of God says, no, the Lord told me not to, to eat, eat the, any food while I was here, not to drink the water, and not to go back the same way. So he departs. So far, so good. Like every other story that is in the Bible. Well, a prophet hears about this, character number three. And the prophet uh, asks which way he went. So he goes and he finds him under an oak. And so the prophet says, come back with me. And again, the man of God says, no, the Lord specifically told me I cannot come back with you. But he says, well, my angel trumps your word. Uh, He told me that you're supposed to come back with me. So the man of God turns back. And as they're, I'm sorry, as, they're, uh, as they're having a dinner, the prophet receives a word of God, or receives a word from the Lord, and he says, man of God, because you didn't obey the, the Lord, he's going to strike you, and you will not return to your father's tombs. So off man of God goes, and he's mauled by a lion. The donkey is left intact. The prophet hears about it. He goes and he gets the the man of God, and he says, oh, this is because he didn't listen. And he goes back and he buries him, and he says, when I die, bury me with this, the man of God. End of story. Rather odd. Um, or is it? Let's read. But here's, here's the story, and it says this. 1 Kings 13. And behold, a man of God came to Judah by the word of the Lord of Bethel. Notice the word of the Lord over and over in this chapter. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you priests on the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he had stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign of the man that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Verse 6 says, And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half of your house, I will not go in with you. I will not eat your bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now verse 11 says, Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. 
So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him under, sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? He said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he, he said, that would be the, uh, the man of God. And he said, uh, where were we? Sixteenth? Thanks. Um, and he said to him, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall not, neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he came to him, I also am an angel. I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back to, with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread and, at his, in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he came, cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water. Can somebody get a paper towel? I spilled water. <laughs> Thanks. Um, where are we? Verse... Uh, I shouldn't have drunk the water either. Uh, <clears throat> where are we? Verse 21. <laughs> and he cried to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Andy. Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. My body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey from the pro- for the prophet whom he had brought back. Verse 24 now says this, And he, as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. And the lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. <clears throat> and they came and told it, in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet, who had brought him back from the way, heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body on his grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in my grave, or bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out against, by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, again from among all the people. 
Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Well, what do we make of this? It's a rather strange story. I think to, to get the, the, a better picture of this, we have to understand First and Second Kings and why it was written. First and Second Kings was written to the, the nation of Israel. And what had happened was they had just both the, you know, there was a divided kingdom, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but they had just fallen into captivity. And so these people are questioning and they're wondering, they're saying, well, is God really for us? Are there other gods? Are, is the Babylonian God more powerful? Why has this happened to us? And the, and the purpose of First Kings is to say, yes, God is still powerful. God is still the one who is in control. And in fact, the reason this has happened is because you've turned away from him. You haven't followed him. And so not only has this happened because of that, but he, God's worked all these things so that you would maybe in hopes return to him. And so that's why this is written. And so we see in, in chapter 11, we see Solomon is still king in 1 Kings. And Jeroboam, we see that he's, he's very able at doing his job. But a, but a prophet comes to him, who's Ahijah by name, and he comes and he says, listen, Jeroboam, the kingdom is going to be split. Ten and two. Benjamin and Judah will be part of Judah. And the other ten tribes will be Israel. And you will be the king of that. Well, Solomon hears about this and he tries to put Jeroboam to death. So Jeroboam flees to Egypt. Then at the end, we see that Solomon does die. But Rehoboam, his son, comes to be king. Jeroboam finds out about this and he comes out of exile into, back into Jerusalem. And Jeroboam says this on behalf of all the people. He says, Rehoboam, listen, Solomon was a great king, but he was really hard on us. He exacted a lot of things from us. He was, but, you know, we, we've really been weighed under by the burden of, of your, your father. Go easier on us. So you probably know this story. He uh, he seeks counsel. And I think this is interesting because in, in Samuel, in 1 Samuel, when the, the nation of Israel said, we want a king, Samuel says, listen, you don't want a king. You don't want a king. He says, your sons will be drafted into an army. Your daughters will be taken. They'll be perfumers. They'll be, cooker, they'll be uh, cooks. They'll be bakers. He'll take a tenth of your grain. He'll take a tenth of your vineyards. He'll take a, uh, a tenth of your flocks. But, so exactly what Samuel said was going to happen is now occurring. And so Rehoboam seeks counsel, and so he goes to the old wise men of his time, and they say, yes, lighten the load. Solomon was very rough on him. But he goes over to his, his buddies who he grew up with, and they say, no, be hard on him. You know, if Solomon whipped him with, with uh, whips, you should whip him with scorpions. So Rehoboam's answer is no. At which point Jeroboam leads a revolt. And we see that it's direct. This was interesting for me. The, the split kingdom, if you look in chapter 12, if you read chapter 12, it's very evident that it's from the hand of the Lord, that God ordained it. But Jeroboam leads the revolt, and so that brings us to the end of chapter 12. And chapter, at the end of chapter 12, we, from 25 to 33, we see Jeroboam setting up a false religion. He says, He's very fearful because he says, listen, if people go back and worship in Jerusalem, which is now part of Judah, if they go back and they worship there, they're going to return to Rehoboam and they're going to kill me. This is probably not a good idea for, for him. So he says, um, I'll set up two calves, one in Bethel, you know, the southern part of Israel, the other in Dan. 
and then we can we can worship these golden calves. And we'll, we'll set up a, he set up a temple and he set up an altar. And in verse 28 it says this. It says, in chapter 12, 28 it says, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough, Jeroboam is speaking, and he says, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, that's almost verbatim what Aaron said at the golden calves when they just came out at Mount Sinai. And then in verse 33 it says he appointed a festival and a feast like the one in Judah. And, he says, and it says in, chapter, in verse 33 he had devised it from his own heart. You know, there was a feast of booths that the nation of Judah celebrated in the seventh month. Well, he says, well, hell, let's, let's, do, a, let's do a feast, let's do a festival in the eighth month. And we'll, we'll, we'll offer sacrifices to the, to the altar and this, to this calf. So this is the backdrop of chapter 12, 13. That's why it says, and behold, verse 1. Because this is a big deal. Do you get the picture of this? I mean, Jeroboam doesn't go every day to the altar to offer sacrifices. This might have been the inaugural day of the festival. Or it could be, maybe it had been going on maybe one or two or three years. But this was a big deal. You know, we don't know if there was any other festivals celebrated by Israel, the nation of Israel after the split. But this was one big deal. So the king comes with all the pomp and circumstance. There had to have been a number of people at the, at the altar. And so up comes the man of God. So our first point is this. God is not going to just let this happen. So the first point is God is the one true God and he demands exclusive worship. And I was just thinking about this, about the end of chapter 12, how I am just like Jeroboam how I so often create gods that are convenient. You know, I don't want to go to, to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice, so I'll just create this, this new convenient type of religion. And it's, it's really nice because it never offends, it never makes me feel bad for anything I'm doing. But the only problem is, you know, it's, it doesn't really help you when there's something that is out of your control happens. You know, this, these altars and these idols that we create, they look just like us and they're, they're really nice. But then when we sin, and we, like Jeroboam, you know, something bad happens because we're going the way the Lord says not to. We immediately, we don't turn back to God. We just say, hey, Lord, just fix my problem. Just make it right. You know, my hand is, 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 is crippled because I didn't follow you. Just, I'm not going to turn to you. Just make my hand okay. I think we are a lot like Jeroboam. The other thing before we dive all the way into this, is I think it's important to understand the importance of the altar in this story. You know, there's this, this fact that this is in front of an altar is highly symbolic. In chapter 8, Solomon sets up a temple, and he, he, it says, Solomon stood before the altar. And so he offers, uh, he, he, he consecrates the, the, the temple and the altar, and the Lord says, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you, but if you as a nation turn against me and forsake me, I will curse you. Well, now we see in chapter 13 and, and the end of 12, we have another competing altar. So now, all of a sudden, we have two altars. And then if you go all the way to chapter 11, and, and I think it's interesting because in, in here it says in verse 2, or it's in, it's in verse 1, Jeroboam was standing by the altar. And then we come to chapter 18, if many of, many of you know the story of Elijah and the prophets of, of Baal, and they have a competition of whose God is the best God. 
But what does it say there? It says, after the, the prophets of Baal tried all their tricks and nothing happened, it says, Elijah rebuilt the temple of the Lord. So you see this descent. It's a symbolic of the entire nation of Israel. This altar is, is highly symbolic. It's first the kingdom starts out well, right, in Solomon. And now we're setting up a competing false religion. All the way to chapter 18, we see that they've completely forsaken the Lord. And now we come to our second point. As we come to, as the man of God cries against the altar, over and over and over we talked about God's word. The second point is that God's word is trustworthy and truthful. He prophesies in in verse 2. He says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. We see that fulfilled if you turn to 2 Kings. Look at 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23, we see the fulfillment of this. And verse 15, he says, Josiah is, is now king, and he makes all these reforms. He hears about the word of God, so he makes all these reforms. And in verse 15, he says, Moreover, the altar of, at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And as he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God had proclaimed, who had predicted these things. And so then he sees a monument, and it goes on and he says, well, what's that monument over there? And, it says, and the men who are with him say, hey, there was, a, there was a man 330 years ago, over 330 years ago, that said what you just did was going to happen, and you were going to be the one who did it. And... Uh, and so he says in verse 18, he says, let that man be, be, let him be, and let no man move his bones. So we see over and over and over that God's word is trustworthy and truthful. We see that according to the phrase back in First and Second Kings, we see according to the word of the Lord, repeated over and over and over. We see, uh, you know, in verse in chapter 11, there's the split kingdom. It's prophesied. In chapter 12, it's fulfilled according to the word of the Lord. Jeroboam's family has prophesied that, it's going to, that everybody in his family is going to be killed, murdered, in chapter 14. In chapter 15, according to the word of the Lord, it's, it takes place. So we see that God's word is trustworthy and truthful. And then, we, then as we go further in our story, we see that Jeroboam's hand dries up and the altar crumbles. And so he intercedes upon, on the man of God man of God prays and off the man of God goes. So on the way as he's met by the, the prophet, he, you know, the prophet says the exact same thing to the man of God. He says, come home with me. And his answer is the second time. He first said to Jeroboam, now he says for the second time, no, I won't come back, I won't come back with you. You know, I think it's interesting because uh, our point is that God's word is trustworthy and truthful. Well, the only other man's word that we have in this story is that the man lied. Right? He says, go home with me. So we have this contrast of the man's word versus God's word. And then we see that God commands complete obedience to his word. You know, the man obeyed twice. 
but he turned away. You know, every time, I don't know how many times I've read this, this story in the last couple weeks, but every time I get to where, to, to verse uh, 18 and, and 19, I just hope that the, that the, that the, thing, the events are going to change. You know, I don't know if you, if you have a, very, a favorite movie or there was a movie that uh, I liked that, you know, the, the main character, you know he's going to die. The entire movie, you just know it's inevitable. Every time you watch it, you just hope that the ending is going to be different, but it's not. He doesn't turn back. One of the questions is, why did the man turn back? He's already said no twice. Why did he turn back? Well, one argument might be that he was, he was just hungry and thirsty. You know, it probably was a long trip for him. I don't know that that's really compelling because he said no right beforehand. I think maybe the other reason is that he respected the old prophet. You know, the phrase old prophet is not used anywhere else in the Bible. So I think there's an implication there that he, uh, he honored the old man and so he respected him and so he's, he listened to him. You know, I, I think uh, I saw that firsthand a couple weeks ago. Uh, my son, as you know, is five and he's just turned into a voracious reader. It's been really exciting for me to see that as a first time uh, father to see somebody learn how to read, which uh, it's kind of come back to bite us like I was on the very top of a ladder the other day, and he said, hey, Daddy, it says don't step above here. And I was like, yes, you're right, I was on. And so I come down. But we also go up to Rockton, where my aunt and uncle live, and they have a, a great barn, or a great farm that has a barn and a nice pond, and they have four-wheelers, and, or a four-wheeler, and they have a golf cart. And um, he loves more than anything to go four-wheeling. And... Uh, my, my cousin, who's, now, who's in the Air Force Academy, he came home for, for, a, for his, his summer break. And so he, he was with Cousin Grant, and he was going four-wheeler. So he's four-wheeling. So he hops on the four-wheeler, and, it's, uh, and Gage says, hey, this says no passengers under the age of 16. And so my cousin Grant says, well, I'm 19, and you're four, so that makes 25, so we're good. <laughs> <laughs> But do you see the point is that he thought he, uh, he, he read this and it was nothing but more than like a good suggestion because Cousin Grant said it's okay. I think that's how we sometimes interpret the Bible. You know, we think that the Bible is a, really, is a, is a good suggestion to live by, but when it comes down to it, um, something else ends up being our authority. I think in some ways, I think in my life, I see... It, in a, in, a, in a real way, that I'm a functional atheist. You know, I profess all these great things about God, but when it comes down to really walking in it, I just, eh, you know. You know, there's something else that's kind of a better authority to go by. <clears throat> um, Wayne Grudem says this. He said, on why we need to obey, he says, the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words, in such a way that to disobey or disbelieve any word of Scripture is to disobey or disbelieve God. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you disobey or disbelieve any word of Scripture, you're disobeying God. And in this story, I think there's some things about the Word of God. I think there's some ideas that need to be held in tension. I think the first is that there's this beauty and there's uh, this mystery in the Word of God that we need to still hold on to. But there's also a very clear Word of God. And those need to be held in tension. You know, we just can't say, hey, everything in the Bible makes is very, very clear. 
but we can't always say, well, we don't really know anything. You know, I was talking to two non-Christians about this text this week, and um, it was interesting because I had almost the exact same conversation with both of them. I said, basically, you know, this isn't a real straightforward verse. It's kind of obscure. It's, a, it's kind of a goofy chapter. And they both said, essentially, well, that's great because then it's, it's up to your own interpretation. All you've got to do is convince them that you're right. And I said, well, that might be true, except the problem is my interpretation could be completely wrong. I told one of them, I said, um, I said, if I give you a glass of poison and you're interpreted that to be Coke and you drink it, you can be interpreted, but you're completely wrong. Um, and we, he talked to, we, we had a good talk and it was good, but it, I think we, we both agreed that, yeah, you can, uh, or in both cases, they agreed that, yeah, interpretations are good, but uh, you, they, you, you could be wrong. You see, I mean, there's a beauty and there's a mystery in this story. Like, for instance, how did the Word of God come to the man of God? We don't know. Why did God speak to the man of God? And why did He say, don't do these three things? Don't eat the water, or don't eat the food, don't drink the water, and don't, uh, and don't go back the same way. Why did He say that? I have a pretty good idea, but I don't know for sure. But the fact is, it's, it, the, God's Word was very clear, was it not? He said, don't do three things. There's three things you have to do. You have to prof- Well, first you have to go prophesy against an altar, but then you have to do three things and, and go on your way. It's very clear. I think there's another, thing, another idea in here that we need to, to wrestle with, and in a good way, I think that there's a complexity to the Word of God, but there's a simpleness, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we don't understand. Let's just be honest. Or at least I don't understand. Maybe you do. But the word is really simple in a lot of ways. And as I was thinking about this, you know, it's not the hard parts of the Bible that I have trouble listening to and obeying. It's the simple things of the Bible. Kids, for you, maybe there's a lot of the parts of the Bible that you don't understand, but there's some simple things you can do, right? Um, Obey your parents. Honor your parents. That should keep most kids busy for quite a while. It's simple. Um, but that doesn't mean that we just say, oh, what does this mean? You know, this is really hard. Let's just move on. You know, I love how Luther, when he was reading the book of Romans, he came um, and he talks about him laying hold of Paul and beating him until he gave up the answer. You know, that's how we read the Bible. We need to read the Bible. You know, he was reading it. He, he says this, I hated the righteous God who punished sinners. I, thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately, I beat endlessly, incessantly, annoyingly upon Paul at that place, desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. So while there is a complexity, you know, there, we just need to beat and beat and beat on the text until we come up with uh, what we think to be a godly interpretation and what is faithful to his word. So we go back to our story, and so they return the man of God and the, the, the prophet, they return to the prophet's house and they're eating, and the, the word of the Lord comes to the man of God, or to the prophet, rather, and he says, essentially, hey, because you listen to me, you're going to die. Now, I was just imagining that must have been an incredible conversation killer. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, there's been times where uh, I have somewhat made a disparaging comment to somebody, and I'm sure this never happens to any of you, but you kind of turn around and you realize that they're right behind you, you know, and then there's this very, very awkward silence. Like, you can't say, I didn't really mean that, because you clearly did. Um, 
I can't imagine how the rest of that conversation went. But uh, regardless, they, the man of God goes on his way. And we see the lion come and he mauls him. And so our fourth point is God's word is active, God's word is living, and God's word is powerful. God's word is active, God's word is living, and God's word is powerful. <clears throat> you know, there's three instances here where it's very evident that God's hand is in this thing. You know, our second, the second thing that we saw was God's word is trustworthy and truthful. But he's not just this great fortune teller in the sky saying, oh, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. He is sovereignly acting and willing things to happen in this story. Right? With the lion. It's very evident that God sent the lion because he sits right beside him. The, the, the Jeroboam's hand. Who does he inter- tell uh, the man of God to intercede for, to? To his God. It's very clear that God crippled and dried up his hand. And then the altar. You know, the altar just crumbles and the ashes pour out. Very evident that God's word is active and living and powerful. <clears throat> um, there's, a, there's a conference called the Gospel Coalition. And uh, this year at, uh, it was at Trinity Divinity School. And Brian Chapel, who is a seminary professor, or he's, I think he's the president of, of a seminary, he gave this story that I thought was, was a, is, a, is an incredible illustration of, of God's active and living and powerful word. He said... When he had just graduated from, uh, he, he was a couple years out of seminary, and he, got, he went out to dinner with one of his buddies who he, he met in seminary. And his, his, his buddy was a youth pastor at the time. And so uh, this youth pastor came up with uh, this game that he thought was going to be awesome. Well, the kids thought it was really stupid. But what he did was he said, okay, we're going to have everybody sit in a circle. So all the kids sat around in a circle, and then he said, okay, let's get a volunteer. One of you sit in the middle of the circle. So one came and sit in the, sat in the middle of the circle, and he blindfolded him. So the, uh, Brian Chapel's friend then goes on to say um, that he handed out Bible verses to everybody in the circle. And so he said, okay, now the, this person in the, in the middle, you give something that's going on with your life, some trouble, some problem, and everybody in, who's in the circle, you look down at your Bible verse, and if, if, if it speaks to that problem, you, you say it out loud. And he thought this would be a really good example of this is God's word speaking to the people, uh, to the kids. And the kids, you know, I, was, I helped out with the youth for a number of years, and, you know, the kids can make the dumbest games the most fun, and they can make the awesomest games the most, the most torturous times. But they thought this was bad. I mean, the, the best answer was, how do I get an A in Mrs. Bailey's math class? You know, and there's no real good Bible verse for that. Um, but then there was a new girl. She said, I'll go. So she, she stands up, and she gets in the middle, and she's blindfolded, and she says, I'm so miserable. I don't know if I can stay in my life anymore. You know, the kids started to get embarrassed. They looked down at their shoes. Some of them, you know, felt really guilty. And then one looked at, at their verse and it says, But I am faithful. I will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. But when you are tempted, I will provide a way out that you may be able to endure it. And then she said, Nobody cares about me. And one, another person looked and said, But I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I have called you with loving kindness. And then she said, but you don't understand. My parents kicked me out of the house last night and said, don't ever come back. 
And one looked at the verse and said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. <coughs> Much like I am doing now. Um, at the end of this, the, this, they took the blindfold off and she was crying. And she said this, why doesn't God really speak to me that way? And Brian Chappell's buddy said, you know what, he does. And he speaks to you in just that way. Well, as we come back to our text, I think verse 29 might be the most humorous verse in all the Bible. Because it says this, He's talking about the prophet, and it says, And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city. What do you mean? I mean, it says twice before this that you have dead man, donkey on one side, lion on the other side. I, in some, kids, in some of your pictures, I like that one picture because it has the lion with one of his paws on the dead man. You know, I don't know if that's, that was obviously an artist uh, interpretation. But uh, don't you think that maybe the prophet had a little bit of fear going up to the man of God when he went to go get the body. I mean, in some way he was responsible for the death of this man. Um, but he just says, no, he, he just went up and found his body thrown on the, in the road. Um, I think there might have been a little bit of fear involved in that. But the prophet brings the man of God back, and he buries him at next to the altar, as we see. <clears throat> so let's look at the reactions of God's word. We see Jeroboam, and he doesn't listen to the Word of God. You know, it's interesting. I, I learned this. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel, and there were, 19, there were 18 kings after him. There were 19 total kings. Every single one of them, it says, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every one. And in most cases, it says, they did evil just like Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. He set the trajectory for the entire nation of Israel. He was the benchmark by which all other kings followed in. None of them did good. What about the man of God? How did he react to the word of God? Obviously, he obeyed twice. But as we saw, God commands complete obedience. He failed. What about the prophet? The prophet... He obviously lied, and he lied to the man of God. He did not fulfill the word of God. As one pastor said, Jeroboam says, I don't listen, and I never did listen to the word of God. The man of God says, I used to listen to the word of God. And the prophet says, I sometimes listen to the word of God. It's interesting, at the end, Jeroboam says, after all this, he didn't turn away from his evil way. And that, I think, is the point of the story, is that everyone in the story failed to do the word of God. The point of the story is that we cannot fulfill God's word. You know, it's interesting here. I, read, I don't know how many times I read this, and I came to this thought. I read this over and over and over, and then I said, you know what? The man of God's name is never mentioned. Why? And then I did a little study. I counted the times. Fifteen times it talks about the man of God in this chapter. And it talks about him twice in 2 Kings 23, as we talked. So 17 times. The, man, the term man of God is only used 73 times in the Bible. And almost every time, it talks about Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, or Elisha. Elijah and Elisha over and over and over and over. This time, 15 times, the word man of God is never given a title. We don't know who he is. Why? Here's why I think 
I think that he's never given him a title because he stands for every man of God in the Old Testament who can fulfill the word of God. You know, first we go with Adam. Ah, he screwed up. All right, let's try somebody else. Let's try Abraham. Nope, he screwed up. All right, let's try David. Ah, no, he's not working out either. All right, how about Elijah? No, he's not working out either. The point of the story is that, in this story, is that the man of God didn't follow God's word and was struck down. But the beautiful thing about the Bible story is that 930 years later, a man of God, the man of God, completely followed God's word and was struck down for it. You know, over and over and over in, in commentaries, they were struggling with this problem. And maybe you've asked this problem of this text. You know, why did God just shrivel Jeroboam's hand? And then he healed it again. But he killed the man of God after, just, after he had obeyed twice. Here's how almost every commentary dealt with it. And they said this is this moral of the story. This is the point of this text is that God dealt with the prophet who had more responsibility, more severely, than he did with the man who had less. Essentially, obey God or he's going to get you. The problem I have with that is, if the man of God can't obey, he was given three tasks, three responsibilities. You know, he fulfilled the one, but then he said, it says, don't drink the water, don't eat food, and don't go back the same way. That's all he had to do, three things. God has given me so many more things. If the man of God can't do those three things, what hope is there for me? How arrogant is it for me to think that, hey, the man of God screwed up, but I got it all fixed. The other problem is, okay, maybe the Jeroboam had less, but the prophet in Ahijah already came to him and said, hey, if, you're, if you obey God, he'll bless you, but if you don't, he's going to curse you. I mean, Jeroboam was given a whole lot. He, he was given the entire nation of Israel. So I don't really know that he was given less. I mean, yeah, he wasn't as godly of a man, but I think he was given, in a lot of ways, he was given far more. Why did God shrivel Jeroboam's hand and then heal it? That's the point of the story. The point of the story is it reveals God's incredible mercy towards all of us. The point of the story isn't that God, you obey God or he's going to get you or you're toast. The point of the story is everybody should have been toast in this story. Everybody should have been killed. They all disobeyed God's word, didn't they? This story is about a prophet, a priest, and a king that all completely failed God's word. The story of Jesus is about the prophet, priest, and king who completely fulfilled God's word. You know, there's another person in this story, isn't there? King Josiah. If you go to 1 Kings 23, it says, He was the greatest king ever in all Israel and Judea. It says he was better than every king before him. That includes Solomon. That includes David. He was better than every king after him. That's pretty incredible. You know, we talk a whole lot about, I was just thinking about this, we don't talk a whole lot about Josiah. It says he was the greatest man. He says he, when he heard about the word of God, he heard the word of the Lord, he instituted uh, the Passover, which hadn't taken place until uh, Samuel was the last person who instituted the Passover. That means that the Passover wasn't instituted in the days of Saul, uh, David, or Solomon. Well, King Josiah was going to make everything right. Anybody know how? Anybody remember how he died? Because he didn't do what? Didn't obey the word of God. You look at Second Chronicles 35. 
<clears throat> Necho, the king of Egypt, is going to fight at Carchemish. And Josiah goes out to meet him. He's like, you know, I'm going to take him. And it's, it's really interesting. I don't think Necho, uh, the king of Egypt, was by any means a, uh, a Christian, as, as far as we would call him. I mean, I don't, that's a whole different topic. But um, it's, Necho says this in, in 2 Chronicles 35, 21. It says, And God has commanded me to hurry, meaning go to the Carchemish and fight. And he says, and he says this to Josiah. He says, Cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Verse 22 says, Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho. Listen, from the word of the mouth, from the mouth of God, but came to flight fight at the plain of Megiddo and he was shot by and the archers shot King Josiah. Verse 2 says this it says behold a son shall be born of the house of David. It's talking about a son that will be born of the house of David. King Josiah is going to come and he's going to make everything right. At the end of his life he disobeys God at the cost and it cost him his life. There's another son born of the house of David. Jesus by name. King Jesus, at the end of his life, obeyed God at the cost of his life. This talks about a prophecy of the future King Josiah who will make everything right that is wrong in the story. Old Testament prophecies talk about a future King Jesus who will make everything right that is wrong with every story. The end of Revelation 11:15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and it is of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This story talks about false priests that are going to be sacrificed on the altar for the sins of Israel because they've forsaken the Lord. Jesus was sacrificed on the cross for the sins of us. So the point isn't really that we can't fulfill God's word. The point is that, that's the whole point, I guess. But the point also is that we can trust the one who completely fulfilled God's word. And he's the one that we can trust. So, in closing, let me ask you this. Let's not just read this story. You know, there's a lot of still questions that I have in the story, but I think I've, made a, a, I've answered a whole lot of them in my own heart and in my own mind, and hopefully I've answered them in some ways for you. But let's not just read this story. Let's let, this, let's let the Bible read us. Because I think that there's things in each one of these people that somewhere, everywhere in here can identify with. My question is, are you like evil King Jeroboam? Have you set your own complete empire of your own religion? You're in control of everything except something when something goes out of your control. Are you so far away from God that you don't even care? I call you to look on Jesus. You can't fulfill God's word. Or maybe you're like the man of God. Maybe you think you're really proud and you're really feeling good that you're obeying God's word. My question is, well, what happens that one time when you screw up? God could and should wipe you out for it. So are you trusting and are you being really proud that you're doing a really good job? Well, God commands complete obedience. So what's your, what's your hope? I just call you to repent and call on Jesus. Maybe you're like the prophet You know, that prophet, his heart had become hard. I think the Lord, I mean, this is pure conjecture, but I think at one time he was was serving the Lord, 
and I, I don't know, but in, it, clearly his heart has become hard in such a way that he's in Bethel and in such a way that he uh, goes and he lies to a man of God. Are you maybe a Christian, but your heart's been really hard? You've really screwed up, maybe? This guy was responsible for the death of somebody else in some ways. I just call you to call on Jesus. Repent. Or maybe you're like King Josiah. You hear about God's Word and you make all these reforms in your life. But all, and you're doing all the right things and you're trusting Christ, but sometimes you really screw up. No doubt when he went and fought against Necho, the king of Egypt, hundreds, maybe thousands of people died because of his foolish responsibility or because of his foolish decision. And he did as well. You know, maybe you're, you're just trying to, to do your... You're resting in Christ, but you really screw up sometimes. <clears throat> you're like Josiah. I just call you to keep looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The point of the story isn't that don't screw up or you're toast. The point of the story is you're going to screw up and you should be toast. The story is, or the moral of the story is you need to trust in Christ because He is enough for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I just pray for my feeble words that they would be honoring in your sight. Lord, I pray that we would trust in you because you're our only hope. In your name, amen. Thank you. Uh, I don't have any announcements, so you're dismissed. Kids, come on up here.